Thanks for joining us for a message from Reason Church in Portland, Oregon. We'd be so stoked to hear how this message has impacted your life. You can share your story by going on our website at reasonchurch.com. You can also partner with us financially by going on reasonchurch.com and giving on our Give page. You will be helping people find a reason to live for in Jesus. We're in a series. This is actually week two of a series we're calling Voice Control. Voice Control. Everybody say that with me voice control. And I read an article in Forbes magazine that kind of gave me the idea for the series. And it said that by 2020, 50% of all internet searches will be via voice. Everything seems to be going through voice control, voice activ- activation. You know, there's Google Home, there's all these different devices where you can just simply speak to them. You don't have to use your hands anymore. I read about uh, LG released a voice controlled vacuum cleaner. Voice-controlled vacuum cleaner. All right. It's kind of like the Roomba, but except you can do it with your voice. Did anybody else think that the Roomba was a dance when you heard about it? I like the Roomba. Yeah, I Roomba. I, do you Roomba? They're like, you're crazy. You're a crazy guy. You don't do the Roomba. I, I told you last week about the Scully motorcycle helmet, and this is the one that really stuck with me. That They released a Scully motorcycle helmet where the visor actually has like a display on it, There's a camera in the back of the motorcycle helmet, so you can see what's behind you, and then there's like a display on the screen, and then you can just speak to your helmet. Like, that is some Iron Man stuff right there, but the only thing is, like, I wish Jarvis was included. I don't think Jude Law is out there with you on the roads. I wish that he was. Just, wouldn't that be great? That'd be so nice. But voice control, that's where everything's headed. But uh, the message of the series really isn't about technology. It's just so simple. If you were to sum up the whole series in two words, it'd be this. Words matter. Words matter. And that's what we're discussing and talking about. Because sometimes we want to control things with our voice. And we want to control our kids with our voice. We want to control our pets. You know, remember on Letterman, like stupid pet tricks. Right? We want to control animals with our voice. We want to control robots with our voice. But sometimes our voices are out of control. We want to control things with our voices, but if you're anything like me, sometimes my voice is out of control. And uh, people say, you know, words don't matter. You know, just words are cheap. Talk is cheap. They're just words. But the Bible would have something different to say. Proverbs tells us this. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says this. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your voice can either be a weapon to kill or medicine to heal. Your voice can either be a weapon to kill or medicine to heal. It can be a sword to wound or a tool to build. A sword to wound or a tool to build. We're going to talk about this more next week, but you have a choice in what you voice. You have a choice in what you voice. And people would say talk is cheap. Words don't matter. You know, just actions speak louder than words. You know, whatever, words, not a big deal. But the book of Proverbs would say differently. Neuroscience would say differently, in fact. Psychology would say different. Um, I read an article in Psychology Today about verbal abuse. 
And people say, oh, it's just words. It's not the same as physical abuse. But uh, there's a psychologist, neuroscientist came together, Naomi L. Eisenberg. She did a study where they actually hooked up a person's brain, you know, uh, put put the nodes and everything all over their head. And they discovered that when somebody speaks railing curse words, when they're they're really ripping into you verbally with their tongue, that it actually activates the same centers of the brain as physical pain. The the really words, you know, uh, neuroscience, psychology, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs would all tell you sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will pierce your soul forever. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can poison you. Words can poison your soul and rip holes into other people. And, and sometimes we're, we're like the crazy guy, just like with a saber ripping all around us, just cutting people down, slashing people down. But you don't have to be that way. You can use words effectively. You can use words as medicine. Maybe, you know, even if you do have to say something uh, critical that, that, that's helping somebody improve, you can, instead of being a sword, you can be like a scalpel. Where, where it's cutting away the bad. You could use your words effectively. Anybody agree that our world could use a little more voice control? Anybody agree? Yeah. A little more voice control. And maybe you're here and you don't even believe the Bible. You're like, okay, that's a good proverb, whatever. Well, I would just submit to you this. I'd, I'd ask you this. This is going to be a six-part series, and I've encouraged everybody to try to make it here for at least five parts. Now, the average American only goes to, uh, the average church center only goes to church twice a month. But I'd encourage you, come for at least five parts of this six-part series, all right? Maybe you can catch the sixth part that you miss, catch it on, on the podcast or something. But our world could use some voice control. And maybe you don't even believe the Bible here, but I just would ask you this. Maybe you're a skeptical person, you're not even sure if you're a Christian. I just want you to imagine this. Imagine how different your workplace would be if you learned to live these concepts out. Imagine how different your family would be if you learned some voice control. Imagine how different our political landscape would be if people learned some voice control. Even if you don't believe the Bible, I just want you to see how true and powerful these concepts are. So we're going to be in the book of James. We're actually going to recap a little bit from last week. Not too much, but a little bit. Look with me in James. Uh, I mentioned last week James was a skeptic, but then when he saw his brother risen from the dead, he was like, dang, bro. And then he became a preacher. (laughs) Dang, bro, you're God and stuff. (laughs) Put it mildly. James chapter 3, verse 9 says this. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done, and everybody say this with me, humility. Humility. This is verse uh, verse 12. It says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, um, or sorry, I apologize. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I want to ask you a question. Do you want to live a life of peace? Do you want to live a life that's meaningful? Do you want to live a life that's fulfilling? I would imagine that most people would say, yeah. Yeah, I want to live a life that's full of peace. I want to live a life that's meaningful. I want to live a life that's fruitful. Well, ancient people understood that living a life of wisdom was living a life in touch with reality. And it was living a life that, 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 was, that, was, that was peaceful. It was living a life that was meaningful. It was living a life that was fruitful. That's what wisdom meant. So I'm giving you a message today that I'm calling this. And you want to do well to pay attention to this. Is this concept. You cannot build a life of peace on words of hate. You cannot live a life of peace, build a life of peace on words of hate. Even if they're just words you're speaking to yourself, you cannot build a life of peace on words of hate. And so what I'm calling my message today is this, advocate or adversary. Advocate or adversary. Would everybody say that with me? Advocate or adversary. I'm not saying you're the adversaries on this side, okay? It's like, Advocates, adversary. No, no, no. (laughs) That's not what we're doing. Advocate or adversary. Are you a slanderer or are you a defender? How do you interact with other people? What kind of words do you say to other people? What kind of words do you say about other people? Maybe that's more important. What kind of words do you say to people? What kind of words do you say about people when those people aren't around? Are you an advocate Or are you an adversary? Are you a slanderer or are you a defender? How do you treat other people's names? How do you talk about other people? How do you relate to other people's weaknesses? How do you relate to other people's failures? How do you relate to other people's successes? Maybe that's even more important question. What this passage tells us is he says that that when we have selfish ambition in our hearts and we use our clever words and we use our cunning speech and, and we've got that fast comeback and we've got that clever thing to say and we've got that way to speak, that that wisdom is actually demonic. All right? He says that it's demonic. That it's not only just human. And I think sometimes we say, well, everybody talks like that. Yeah, that's because we've been living in the sewer so long we quit noticing the smell. You know? Yeah, he says it's demonic. And what I need to realize and what you need to realize is this. We are never more like the devil than when we breed division. And we are never more like Jesus than when we make peace. We are never more like the devil than when we breed division. And we are never more like Jesus than when we make peace. And so, first thought I'm going to pull from this passage is this, advocate or adversary, and this, when we speak evil of others, we do the devil's work. When we speak evil of others, maybe it's at your workplace, maybe it's in your home, maybe it's about somebody at church who really gets on your nerves, maybe it's somebody who doesn't treat you right, and and you're talking about all the evil things they've done and telling everybody what a bad person they are and how they mistreated you. When we speak evil of others, we do the devil's work. Revelation 12.10 says this. 
Then I heard a loud voice say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. What's his point? His point's this. Is that the word devil means slanderer. That what Satan does is he, he tries to drag God's name through the mud. And he tries to misrepresent God's name and slander God's character so that people think God's one way when God's actually another way. And that his other name, the word Satan, means adversary. That Satan is an adversary. That he slanders God's name. He slanders your name. He'll talk bad about other people to you. He'll get you talking bad about other people. That what Satan wants to do is he wants you to speak evil and think evil of people and think evil of God. Now that's Satan's role. That's the devil's work. Now, I realize that many people in Portland don't believe in the devil. I realize that most people in Portland today don't even believe the devil exists. But I would tell you that anthropologists let us know that most people, actually virtually all cultures throughout human history, have believed in evil spirits. You know that? Anthropologists will tell us that virtually every culture that has ever existed throughout human history has believed in evil spirits. More than that, most people alive today believe in evil spirits. You realize that? That if I was in Latin America, or I was in Africa, or I was in Asia, if I was basically in any part of the world other than white western parts of the world, I wouldn't have to give any caveat about this. That most people actually think that evil spirits helps them understand reality better. But here's something else you need to know about what the Bible presents <laughs> about the devil. The devil does not always come to you exorcist style. <laughs> Head spinning. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Saying don't always play like that. All right, that's not a biblical perspective. That's not the only biblical perspective, I should say, of how the devil comes at you. Because 2 Corinthians says that he's way more cunning. He's a smooth operator. That he's clever. That he's crafty. That he knows how to play the game. All right, ladies and gentlemen. And 2 Corinthians 11 verse uh, 14 says this. For such people are false prophets. Deceitful workers. Masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. You know, a lot of times Satan comes at you with righteousness. You know, that's how he comes. He can come to you as the shoulder to cry on. You know that? That's not right. How could they treat you like that? How could they do that? That's not right that your boss was that way. You should, sh you should tell them what's up. That's not right that they've treated you that way. Make them pay. That's not right that that person ignored. They, they're paying you what? They don't even pay you? That's not right. Satan can come to you speaking about righteousness. And a lot of times he is right. But you know what he'll tell you? He'll always tell you, don't be happy. You shouldn't be happy in your marriage. Get out of there. You shouldn't be happy in that church. They're not acknowledging you. They're not treating you right. Leave that church. He comes to you speaking about what's right. 
And a lot of times we think, we think uh, you know, that, that knowing what's right will, will always be the way out of, of the devil's work. But sometimes knowing what's right can be the way into the devil's work. Because self-righteousness is what Satan primarily peddles. With the people who killed Jesus, they knew a lot about what's right. They were experts in what's right. And that's the game Satan typically plays, using righteousness. I really love the quote by Bertrand Russell. Okay, Bertrand Russell was a really famous atheist, but he had a quote that made me laugh so hard because it was just so on the nose about human nature, (laughs) where, uh, where Bertrand Russell said this. He said, there are two motives for reading a book. There are two motives for reading a book. One is to enjoy it, and the other is that you might boast about it. One's that you might enjoy it. The other's that you might boast about it. And, and, and that's what James is talking about. I love the way the message puts it. He says this, verse 13, the message. Twisting the truth to make yourselves sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cutting, devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at each other's throats. I think what Bertrand Russell said can be most true amongst Christians, especially at Bible college. <laughs> you know, it can happen so easily where, where, where I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. And you're making, you're using good truths to make yourself look good and other people look bad. And you're using right truths to make other people look wrong. And you're using right ideas to tell other people how false they are. And you're using the truth for yourself. But when you use the truth for yourself, you abuse the truth. If you misuse the truth and you use the truth to attack people as a weapon to beat people down, you're actually using the truth for yourself. You know, Satan has perfect theology. Oh, they've got wrong theology. I've got the right theology. And I know that. How could they believe that? You know, Satan has perfect theology. But he just uses it for his, own, for his own purposes, for his own devices. And that's exactly what can happen so much. Using truth as a weapon to attack people is an abuse of the truth. Using truth as a weapon to attack people is an abuse of the truth. And what wisdom really is, the Bible says that Jesus is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, it says Jesus is the wisdom of God. But what does it point out in this text? It says that wisdom comes down. The wisdom always descends. See, we use wisdom build ourselves up, to make ourselves go higher and higher and higher. But the Bible says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And what did the wisdom of God do? The wisdom of God descended. Jesus came down. He came down to serve. He came to use his wisdom, not to build himself up, but for the benefit of others. And, and, and that's what the wisdom of God does. The wisdom of God always descends. The truth of the gospel, anybody who knows, has the wisdom to know the gospel, is this. The gospel says, I'm saved completely by God's grace. And anyone who really knows that will never act superior to anyone. When you know you're not saved by how much you know, you're saved by who you know, you won't look down on people who know less than you. Pride is the essence of all sin. That's what the Bible says. Pride is the essence of all sin. You may think one weird, you know, this, this super exaggerated thing is the craziest sin out there. Actually, the Bible says pride is the craziest sin, and it's the root of all sin. And so if hearing about somebody else's sin makes you feel superior, you become the bigger sinner. If hearing about somebody else's sin makes you feel superior, I would never treat somebody like that. 
I would never do that. I would never think something like that. I would never do that. I would never say that. You're actually becoming the bigger sinner in that moment. Um, I love the way J.B. Phillips puts it. He says this, real spiritual wisdom means humility, not rivalry. Real spiritual wisdom means humility, not rivalry. In verse 13 of James, he says that wisdom doesn't make you boast, but that wisdom will actually be shown by living a life of wisdom that leads to peace, but it also leads to good works. Okay, it leads to good works. But one of what's really fascinating here is that the word for good there in the Greek isn't the word agathos. Okay, the word agathos means just like good, like beneficial, like not bad. But the word that he uses in the word agathos, he uses the word kalos. Want to know what kalos means? Ask me, what does it mean? What the heck does that weird Greek word mean, Jesse? Ask me, ask me. It means beautiful. That when you have true wisdom, it will be shown in a beautiful life. In other words, when you use your wisdom not to build yourself up, but you use your wisdom to build others up, that's attractive. When you're the best player on the team, but you don't use the fact that you're the best player on the team to be a show-off, but you use it actually to make the whole team better, that's attractive. When you're the, maybe the smartest person in the class, but instead of using the smart, your smarts to make everybody else look dumb, you actually use your smarts to make the whole class better, that's attractive. That, that, that wisdom is shown in a good life, and that kind of wisdom is attractive. Pride is repulsive to everybody except the proud person. <laughs> Pride is repulsive to everybody else except the proper. Everybody else knows you smell except for you. <laughs> and that's no good. All right? So when we speak evil of others, we do the devil's work. The devil's the accuser of the brethren. Oh, they don't, they're not right. They shouldn't treat you like that. They shouldn't treat you this way. They're wrong. They're wrong. This wrong. That's the accuser of the brethren. When you speak evil of others and their wrongs, you do the devil's work. Next thought is this. If you're in it for yourself... You're an opponent of peace. When you're in it for yourself, you're an opponent of peace. Kind of going back to that whole idea, pride looks bad on everybody else except for the proud person, right? Like other people's pride is always obvious to us. Other people's toxic words, it's obvious. But when we are the ones spewing the toxic words, sometimes it feels good, doesn't it? You turn into Chernobyl and there's like radioactive biohazard spewing out of your mouth. It's like, ah, just let it out. Ah, spewing on everybody else. But everybody else sees how disgusting it is. And I am not trying to make a political statement here. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm trying to make a spiritual statement. You get that? Everybody, nobody can twist my words. Everybody understand? I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm trying to make a spiritual statement here. During the last fall... Everybody saw the biohazard that was getting spewed out on both sides of the aisle, right? Everybody saw it. In fact, I know everybody saw it because a New York Times article took a poll of the United States where they found that more than 8 out of 10 people felt repulsed by the campaigns rather than excited. More than 8 out of 10 people felt repulsed rather than excited about the candidates. And uh, they, they felt disgusted by it. They just said the toxicity level was reaching an all-time high and that that toxicity was going to threaten either person whether they won. Now get this. This is an article I read from last fall after the first presidential debate. I did not read this in Christianity Today. I did not read this in 
you know, gospel magazine, the blood of the lamb magazine.org.com slash Jesus sheep. <laughs> okay, I read this in Atlantic magazine. What did Atlantic magazine say? For more than 90 minutes, two presidential candidates traded charges on stage. The bitterness and solipticism, solipticism, you can almost say it's pride, but really it's a philosophy where you live as if you're the only person who exists. Isn't that funny? You live as if you're the only person who exists. The bitterness and solipticism of their debate offered an unnerving glimpse of American politics in a post-Christian age. Devoid of the framework that has long bound the nation together. That our actions, what's, what's that framework? That our actions must serve some higher purpose. And that individually and collectively, Americans can and must do great things. The Clinton-Trump debate was decidedly Marxian in its assumptions, all about material concerns with little regard for higher purpose. Um, Marxian, uh, Karl Marx was an atheist. He said in order for Marxism and communism to survive, that people had to strip themselves of the opiate of the masses, that religion was a chain, and that if communism was going to flourish like a flower, you had to break the chain and be free of God. You had to get rid of religion. The Clinton-Trump debate was decidedly Marxian, atheistic in its assumptions, all about material concerns with little regard for higher purpose. Maybe you're a secular person here. Maybe you have friends who are atheists. Maybe you have, you know, people, I've got friends who are atheists, people that I love, people who are good. But here's the deal. Here's, here's the facts that the Atlantic is pointing out. If there's no God, who's the most important person in the universe? I am. I am. And that's what we saw in that debate. And it looks bad on everybody else, but it kind of feels good on you, right? And that's, a, that, that, that's exactly the point. And when you make it about yourself, you become an opponent of the peace. Put that back on the screen. When you make it about yourself, you become an opponent of the peace. Um, it's amazing. You know, you've probably figured out that I'm kind of a history buff. I just think it's interesting. It's like, you know, I'm a human, and they were humans, and they did dumb stuff, and I do dumb stuff. I'm going to learn about them. So I like history. And uh, what's crazy is when you look at the struggle for power, and James talks about selfish ambition, right? He talks about selfishness, trying to get one-up somebody and, and, and be better than somebody and beat somebody else down with how clever you are and how smart you are. Just use your wisdom to get ahead. When you look at the struggle for power throughout human history— it's pretty fascinating because you read about one assassination. It's like, that guy's an idiot. I'm awesome. I'm also the accuser of the brethren, but I'm going to accuse him because he's so dumb. And I'm going to rally everybody behind my cause. And we're going to have a coup d'etat and we're going to overthrow that regime. We're going to assassinate the guy, right? And you assassinate him. And then you become an office. Want to know what happens? You just read about like another assassination, like two years later. And, and, and one dynasty gets replaced by another dynasty, and one monarchy gets replaced by another monarchy because selfishness just breeds more selfishness. And kingdoms built on selfishness always self-destruct. Kingdoms built on selfishness always self-destruct. It says in verse 15 that wisdom descends from heaven. I told you before, Jesus, he's the personification of wisdom. He is wisdom. He's the wisdom of God. Wisdom always descends, but pride always ascends. It always ascends. You're trying to build yourself up. And when we speak evil, okay, when you're using your mouth like a, like a freaking machete, 
get, get ready like a hot machete. What's, that's an old song. I don't even know. That's weird. Anyways, but like, like, like when you're hacking people apart with your freaking machete tongue, you cut people down. Why? So you can build yourself up. You cut people down so that you can build yourself up. You expose people's weaknesses to make yourself look strong. You talk about how bad people are. Why? To make yourself feel good. Oh, they're so bad. I'd never do it like that. Oh, he said that. I'd never say that. You're making that person look bad. Why? To make yourself look good. But wisdom descends. We cut other people down. Why? To lift ourselves up. But you will never rise by cutting people down to size. You will never rise by cutting people down to size. Now think about this in, 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 in another way. Some of you are like me. Okay, because I'm not like the quick-witted guy. Like, I come up with some clever stuff, but it takes me a long time. I'm like a slow cooker, right? I got to work hard on these messages. But some people are just quick-tongued. They're fast, and they always have that fast comeback. I had two brothers that both were that way, and I was, I was always like, dang it. You know, I'd walk away from the argument, and like 10 minutes later, I'd be like, oh, I should have said, I should have, that would have been awesome. You know, always had the comeback way too late. That's how I totally was. And some of you are like that. You're like, I don't ever... I don't ever, you know, say bad things to people. I don't say bad things to people. They say bad things to me. But here's the deal. What a lot of us do is we do this. We go, they made me feel bad, so I'm going to tell everybody and make them look bad. They made me feel bad, so I'm going to be the accuser of the brethren. I'm going to tell everybody about it and make them look bad. Uh, They injured you, so you injure their reputation. They injured you, and they injured your reputation. You're giving them back what they deserve, and you're paying them back. But here's, here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us this. You cannot give someone else what they deserve while simultaneously realizing what you deserve. Because if we believe the gospel, we believe we all deserve justice. And you cannot praise God for his grace and run around prosecuting people for their sins. You can't have it both ways. That's what James says. It's like, hey, either have it, make, this, make the spring good or make the spring salty. You're, you're, the moment you start prosecuting people for sins, you stop praising God for his grace. Make sense? It's just, it's just so simple. And you oppose the peace because grace creates healing. Grace creates peace. Um, there are whole friendships based on this. I've been a part of friendships like this where literally you get together with a group of dudes and you're the cool dudes. <laughs> oh, and you're the smart dudes. And you're the funny dudes, and you're the clever dudes, and everybody else in the world is idiots. <laughs> and all you do, and the entire friendship is based upon picking other people apart. And the entire friendship is like, they are, they, we'd never do like that. <laughs> they think that, we'd never think that. He dresses like that, we'd never dress like that. They listen to that, we would never listen like that. And, and, and you're talking about other people. But what I want you to realize, boys and girls, because girls do it too, for sure. <laughs> what I want you to realize is this. If they talk to you about other people, eventually they're going to talk to other people about you. It feels really good when you're the insider. Ah, <laughs> they're all fools. We're the cool kids. We're the cool ones. If they talk to you about other people, eventually they're going to talk to other people about you. If you're in it for yourself, you become opponent of the peace. 
And so that, and God, you know, God's for you. I was going to save this for next week, but I, but I can see the look on everybody's face where it's like, dang, Jesse, this message is hard to hear. Here's the deal. You need to know God is for you. You need to know I'm for you. I'm not against you. But the doctor who's against your bad diet is for you. And the coach who's against your sloppy routes is for you. He wants you to win. And the teacher who's against your bad grammar, my bad grammar, I got terrible grammar. (laughs) The, The teacher who's against your bad grammar is for you. They want you to get good grades. And so God, he is opposing the bad words that are coming to your mouth. Why? Because he's for you. Because he wants you to be healthy. Because he wants you to win. Because he wants you to succeed. That he wants you to get good grades on the score of life. That he doesn't want you to live this life of conflict and opposition and, 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 and backbiting and hatred and slander and ripping people apart. God is opposed to gossip because he's, he's pro-peace. God is opposed to slander because he's pro-love. God is opposed to the wicked things that you say. Why? Because he wants you to have, 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 have the experience of, of, of mercy and kindness and relationship because a meaningful life is really all about relationships. But when you take that machete tongue out, you're destroying relationships. God is for you. And that's why he hates this stuff. Check this out. Proverbs 6.16. These six things the Lord hates. And you got to remember these. Why does God hate these things? Because he loves you. Why does God hate these things? Because he loves you. Well, why does he say these things are an abomination? Because he's, he's, he's an obsessed with you and he loves you. These six things that the Lord hates, even seven things that are an abomination to him. And this is so funny because my wife, as I was telling her about this verse, uh, she was like, why does he say it like that? Like these six, it's like, and me and my friends at Bible college, because when you go to Bible college, you just make dumb Bible jokes all day. But like, when I was at Bible college, we'd be like, I'm going to eat six Skittles. Nay, seven Skittles. Yeah. I'm going, yeah, I don't know. Weird. It's for emphasis. And want to know what verse 19 says number seven is? The one that it wants to emphasize more than anything? The word abomination, it makes, means to make throw up. Want to know what makes God throw up more than all the other six ones? A person who stirs up conflict in the community. And Christians, we're sometimes the worst ones about gossip, aren't we? Did you hear what they did? Can you believe that that leader talked to her like that? Can you believe that she did this? Can you believe that he, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. We're so quick to call other sins an abomination, but if you're stirring up division in the church, you're the abomination. That's straight preaching right there, man. That's just the Bible. Now, sometimes when a conflict really gets out of hand, you know what happens? It's just like when you're a little kid. You know, sister and brother are fighting, and they're fighting, and first they're like, can we work it out ourselves? Can we work it out ourselves? Mom! You know, when a conflict gets out of hand at the business, at the workplace, it's like, we're having this conflict, we're having this conflict, we're having this conflict. And then, ah, somebody call the boss. And then in a church, it gets really crazy. And then somebody's like, hey, Jesse, come over here. This person, they're, they're so bitter and they're so hurt and they're so cut and they're so angry. Jesse, come over here and fix this problem. Hey, my boy Gabriel told me a really great analogy, okay? And he tells me this story about how uh, when a f- building is on fire, 
and somebody calls 911, it usually takes about nine minutes for the fire department to get there. Nine minutes, that's pretty fast. Like, good job, fire department. That's pretty fast. Nine minutes is good. But you know what the fire department will tell you? They'll tell you that in that nine minutes, usually the fire spreads so out of control that they can put it out, but, like, the structure is still going to be jacked. It's going to be devastated in horrible ruins. But the firefighter said this. And nine times out of ten, there's a fire extinguisher within reaching distance of where the fire started. There's a fire extinguisher in arm's length of where the fire started. Want to know what dumping gasoline on a fire looks like? You're right. He shouldn't have said that. You're right. That was wrong of him. You're right. And you're just dumping gasoline on the fire. But I'm telling you that anybody can raise a red flag. Leaders put out fires. And you can be a leader. And you want to look being a leader looks like it looks like this. You know what? That is disappointing. You know what? That was a bummer that he treated like that. But like we say in the crash course, our commitment must be deeper than our disappointment. And a day is going to come where you need grace. And a day is going to come where you have a bad day. And a day is going to come where you do something disappointing. And a day is going to come that where you sin. And we're going to be committed to them, the person who hurts you, just like we're committed to you. <laughs> Leaders put out fires. And if you come in your workplace and you say, you know what? Instead of dumping gas on the fire, I'm going to be like, you know what? Hey, this workplace would be a lot better if we just forgave him. This workplace would be a lot better. And this team would be a lot better. This family would be a lot better. You know, you mess up too sometimes, and, and, and you need forgiveness. I mess up too sometimes. I need forgiveness. Let's forgive that person. Why not put out some fires? Anybody can start a fire. And James says that your tongue can set the whole course of your life on fire. Um, Proverbs ten twelve. Just memorize this one. Hatred stirs up strife. Get this, imagine, imagine the guy with a blanket, like there's a huge fire and he comes and throws the blanket on it. Whew. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. You are most like the devil when you spread division. You are most like Jesus when you make peace. You are most like the devil when you spread division. You're most like Jesus when you make peace. You know, let's forgive him. Yeah, she blew it. That was wrong of her. But you know what? You need grace. I need grace. Let's show her some grace. She needs love. We love her. We're committed to her. Our final thought, though, is, is this, as we kind of shut this thing down, bring it in for landing. Advocate, adversary. Advocate, adversary. We shut this down. How do you become an advocate? Like, how do you stop? Like, how do you get to that spot where you don't speak evil of anyone? Like Titus says, speak evil of no one. How many ones? No one. How do you get to that spot? I'll tell you what. The way you stop opposing people is by deeply knowing that Jesus defends you. Write that down. Okay? Tuck that into your soul for Thursday morning at work. Tuck that into your soul for next time something happens in the church. Just tuck this into your soul for later. The way to stop opposing people is knowing deeply that Jesus defends you. 1 John 2 1 says this. 1 John 2 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, 
Hey, that includes you. That includes the person you're mad at. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who himself gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for your sin, but also for the whole world's sins. He gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for the world's sins. Satan is out to expose people. Satan is out to condemn people. Jesus Christ was condemned so he could cover people. He was condemned so that he could cover people. Why do we make people feel small? We make people feel small so that we can make ourselves feel big. But why do we want to feel big? Because on the inside, we're afraid that we're small. Vanity is inverted insecurity. Vanity is inverted insecurity. And you cut people down so you can lift yourself up. And you make people look bad so that you can make yourself feel good. And you make other people look dumb so that you can make yourself feel smart. And you, and, and you, and you reject other people. Why? So that you can make yourself feel accepted. But this verse is telling you that you already are accepted. That you already are loved. That you don't have to defend yourself because Jesus defended you. And that, and that, that you feel feel so unimportant and you speak those words to make somebody else feel as unimportant as you do, but the most important being in the universe, the only one who had the right to condemn you, he gave himself to defend and to cover you. You already are loved and you don't have to make other people feel insecure when you know that you're secure in the love of God and you don't have to make other people feel worthless When you're secure because God says you have infinite worth because you were purchased with the blood of his son. And that's where the strength to stop opposing people comes from is because you don't have to feel insecure. You're in Christ. I'll close out with this little story. told you I was a history history buff, history dude. True story. Uh, Nicholas II was a czar in Russia. And this was before it was Madarasha. This was like before the, you know, USSR back in the U- the Beatles, back in the U. Anybody, anybody back in the USSR? This was before they were communists. A long time ago, Nicholas II was the czar of Russia. And he had a son, an adopted son actually, who he made the count of the Cossack fortress. Okay, he made him the count of the Cossack fortress, gave him this prestigious position, and uh, he was in charge of this big military outpost. But here's the deal. Count Ivanovich, his adopted son, isn't that a great name? Count Ivanovich, all right? Love it. Count Ivanovich had a little gambling problem. Count Ivanovich had a little problem with money. And he was embezzling from his dad's empire. And he was embezzling, and he was gambling, and he was embezzling, and he was gambling. And the jig was finally up. And the military auditors were on their way. And he knew that the military auditors were coming. And so one night he laid out all the ledgers of all the money he had wasted on gambling and all the debts that he owed. And he laid out all of his debts and all of his books that he'd cooked in front of him. And he looked at them all and he looked at them all and he took a pistol out to shoot himself in the head. And he didn't have the courage to do it. He couldn't pull the trigger, so he started drinking. Probably drinking. And whatever they drink over there in Russia, and he's drinking it, and he's drinking it, 
And he's trying to get the courage to, he's like, I, I can't live with the shame of what I've done. But then he gets so drunk that he passes out. True story. Okay, he passes out. And Tsar Nicholas, who oftentimes would drop in on his troops unannounced to see the real status of his empire, dropped in that night on the Cossack fortress. And he walked into Count Ivanovich's bedroom and he saw all the debts and all the ledgers spread out and he saw the pistol laid out and he saw Count Ivanovich drunk and passed out. And then the next morning came. Count Ivanovich woke up. He saw a note written on the ledgers in front of him that said this. It said, I will pay it all. Tsar Nicholas II. I've paid all. Add all the debts to my account. Jesus Christ covered for you. Jesus Christ, who had every right to condemn you, said you were not condemned. Want to know the words out of Count Ivanovich's mouth when he saw that? He said this. History tells us that Count Ivanovich says this. He has seen all, and yet he loves me. Jesus Christ has seen all. My little children, I write to you that you may not gossip. My little children, I write to you that you may not slander. My little children, I write to you that you might not tell that story, that you might not pass that word along. But if anybody does, he's got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who gave himself for us. When you were a slanderer, Jesus was still your defender. When you were a gossiper, Jesus was still your defender. When you were, when you were lying about people and, and, and just the, the toxic poison was pouring out of your mouth about everybody else's sin, Jesus was still your defender. And when you're secure in his love, you won't have to live a life trying to make everybody else feel insecure. Father, I pray that this truth would get tucked into our hearts. Yeah, this passage tells us that we can't just be hearers of the word. We've got to be doers of the word. That if our roots are in your grace, our fruits will be your grace. Jesus, you've seen all, and yet you love us. You've seen all, and you love us still. God, I pray that, that you'd fill us with that love. That our security in that love would lead us to speak words of love, to speak words defending people, covering people's sin, rather than exposing them. God, I pray that we'd be a church that isn't the accuser of the brothers and sisters. God, I pray that we'd be be advocates for our brothers and sisters, that we'd want them to heal, that we'd want them to grow, that we'd want to give them the same grace that we need. Jesus, make us a church like that. Help us to live out these truths.